This is Angie Souths from Anaconda, Montana, but originally from San Diego, California, and you are listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know there is a little bit more to making a podcast than just talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers, you want to see the audience that you're reaching, and you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I choose Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website, it can't get any easier. So if you host a show or if you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry's support team will be right there every step of the way to help you migrate over so you won't lose any of your subscribers in the process. And if you're brand new to this, they can get your new show up and running. And with a month for free to try it out using promo code DREAM, what have you got to lose? There are a number of ways that you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcast and true crime fan groups. And you can leave the show a rating and a review on iTunes or whichever platform you listen to the show on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can also support the show on Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to one exclusive episode per month. And there are currently, I want to say about 30 episodes now on Patreon that you can binge. So it's a pretty good deal for just a dollar. This week, I'd like to thank Angela C., Justine F., Eunice D., Christine C., and Julie L. for joining Patreon. And I'd like to thank Gina B., Bridget C., and Cindy T. for raising their pledge to the next level. And if you are not interested in a monthly donation, you can help with a one-time donation to the show through our PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps, keeps us going, and keeps us ad-free. So thank you. So this was originally going to be the final episode of 2019, but you know how things go with a certain dog, Fred, and, well... That's all the explanation that you need. I do want to take the time to wish all of you a very happy new year. I think we had an amazing 2019. We surpassed 2 million downloads. We've almost reached our first Patreon goal. And if all continues to go well, perhaps we'll reach our second Patreon goal by the end of this decade. It feels like the true crime genre and podcasting has continued to steadily grow with more new shows and content for us to indulge in. And because we love crime so much, I know many of us are looking forward to the launch of Forensic Files 2020, which is coming in February to HLN. And I, for one, am looking forward to that. I would say that there is hardly a person who listens to true crime podcasts that hasn't seen or heard an episode of Forensic Files which first aired almost 24 years ago, if you can believe that. It's been streaming on Netflix forever. Many of the episodes can be found on YouTube. 
It's been playing on reruns on HLN, and it's now also available in podcast form. That's one of my favorite things about Forensic Files is that it's not hard to find at all when you feel like watching, and not all crime shows are like that. The only downside about the Forensic Files 2020 is the fact that narrator Peter Thomas passed away in 2016, and a new narrator who has yet to be announced will be taking the helm. I'm sure we will enjoy the show just as much as the original, if for no other reason but for the content. But still, those are some big shoes to fill, whoever is going to be the voice of Forensic Files 2020. And I am only skeptical about it because when another one of my favorite shows disappeared, changed narrators after five seasons, I have to admit that I just didn't like the show as much. The sixth season of the show's original run had a different narrator, along with about three disappeared specials. But then, when the show was brought back in 2016 after a three-year hiatus, they did bring back the original narrator, who is Christopher Walker, and all was right with the show again, at least for me. I am not super particular about voices, but once you've gotten used to a certain sound for a certain show... And then it's suddenly different, and it's just not the same. And while seeing as Peter Thomas is no longer with us, we really have no choice. And I'm sure Forensic Files has a very dedicated fan base that will be tuning in, myself included. So speaking of Forensic Files, I was recently watching the show. I put it on my iPad at night and it helps me fall asleep because I've seen all of them. So if I doze off, I'm not really feeling like I'm missing out on anything. But as I was going in and out of my slumber, I was hearing one of their creepiest episodes that you probably remember. It involved a guy who was attempting to fake his own death to start a new life with the insurance proceeds. So this particular episode happened in the state of Texas. On June 18th, 2004, a passerby noticed that there was a vehicle on fire off the side of the road just before sunrise. The fire had burned so intensely that there was hardly anything left of the vehicle. Firefighters had even said that the rubber tires had completely melted onto the ground. And inside the vehicle was the driver who had been burned so badly, it was impossible to tell just by looking if the occupant was male or female, as there was hardly anything left of that person. It was soon determined that the registered owner of the vehicle were a married couple Clay and Molly Daniels. They were the parents of two young children and they resided near the scene of the crash in the city of Leander, Texas. When police arrived at the Daniels' home, they found that Molly and the children were home, but her husband, Clay, was not. And apparently Molly had called up her mom sometime during the morning and she was somewhat upset because Clay was gone with the car and she needed to get to work, and she really had no idea where he was at. Eventually, using some of the things that could somewhat be identified in the car with a body, Clay's family was able to confirm that the burned-up remains were his. Among some of the things that the family confirmed were his were remnants of his shoes, along with the Harley Davidson pin that he used to wear on his hat, as well as a piece of jewelry that also survived that the family said belonged to Clay as well. 
As far as what was left of Clay himself, all of that amounted to about 14 pounds or 6.3 kilograms of charred remains. There was no head, no hands, no fingers, and obviously no fingerprints. The initial thought was that Clay had gone out drinking that night and ended up losing control in veering the car off the road and down the embankment, which then caused the vehicle to burst into flames. At the time of his death, Clay was only 24 years old, and he had kind of hit some hard times in his life. He was a mechanic by trade, but had been struggling to find work, and apparently he had his fair share of enemies who really had not a whole lot of nice things to say about the guy. His mother-in-law did not like him. She did not think he was good enough for her daughter, and she didn't think that he measured up to what she felt he needed to be in terms of a father. And in her interview, she called him an absolute loser. But that was the choice that her daughter made, so they all had to live with it. Clay's best friend eulogized him and actually called him an asshole at his actual funeral. So no, he was not very well liked at all. And not only was he totally lazy, he had absolutely no ambition. But on top of all that, he was also a child sex abuser, having been convicted of the aggravated sexual assault of a seven-year-old cousin. He had been sentenced to 30 days in prison plus 10 years of probation. The car crash happened only three days before Clay was scheduled to surrender to serve his time. So that was one of the first things that got the attention of investigators, was the timing of the crash. Now, one of the first persons to be investigated in this case was actually the father of Clay's sexual assault victim, because he was very, very unhappy with the light sentence that Clay was given in the case, only 30 days. So the initial thought was perhaps the father had something to do with Clay's death. But despite how most of the community felt about Clay, it was not lost on them that Molly, who was only 21 years old at the time of his death, was left to raise two young children by herself and was likely not going to be able to make ends meet with the minimal amount of money that she was earning as a receptionist. The community reached out to her and donated money. They bought her groceries. And one kind neighbor offered to provide childcare for her two children at a discounted rate so that Molly could continue to go to work. Apparently, Molly herself had put up a notice asking for help with the childcare because she was now a widow and unable to afford to place them in daycare in order to go to work. So the community definitely rallied around Molly and her children. But after about a month, the generosity of those helping her, well, they suddenly began pulling back. And one of the reasons was because Molly had announced to some of her friends that she had a new boyfriend, which took everyone by surprise. When we come across situations like this, we find ourselves asking, how soon is too soon? When is it an appropriate time to start getting involved in another relationship when your significant other passes away? One month seems a bit soon, but 
I don't know. Molly could have been looking for someone to latch on to. She could be really needy and was having a hard time getting through. Whatever the case, it was not going over well as far as her friends were concerned. And Molly also spilled the beans on a $100,000 life insurance settlement that she was a beneficiary of. And not only were her friends backing off, not really wanting to associate with Molly anymore, her own mom even had to step back and ask herself, what kind of human being did I raise here? Mom was just as disgusted with her daughter's behavior as everyone else. The medical examiner was not going to simply take the word of Clay's family and wanted to confirm the remains. Well, what little was left, that they really belonged to Clay Daniels. The body part that was left, which would be able to provide DNA, was the bone marrow inside the hip bone. Looking to try to run a mitochondrial DNA test, which, you know, by now can be matched up to his mother. But the unfortunate thing was that the testing was going to take some time. Things move along much faster nowadays than they did back in 2004. So they were just going to have to wait as many as six months before they were going to be able to get the results. So while they waited, they continued to investigate what they could when it came to the actual scene of the accident. I think the fire burned more intensely than a typical fiery car crash. And this had raised a few red flags for investigators and they wanted to take a closer look at the scene itself. One of the first things that stood out was the fact that when the vehicle had veered off the road, there was no indication that the person driving had taken any actions to correct themselves. There were no skid marks like he was trying to slam on the brakes. There was no attempt to stop or slow down or make a sharp turn of the steering wheel to avoid crashing down the embankment. Also, the posted speed limit on that particular road was 60 miles per hour or 96 kilometers per hour, and it appeared as though the car was moving at a very slow rolling rate, as if the car had rolled down or was simply pushed down the embankment. There was hardly any damage to the trees or bushes along the path that the car took. And another big red flag was the fact that the gas tank of the vehicle was not damaged at all. So there was no gas leak or vapors coming from the tank that would have sparked the fire. So if the gas tank didn't cause the fire, then what did? Local law enforcement began to think that there was something criminal going on here and that the person driving this car was likely murdered they decided to bring in an independent arson expert to take a closer look at what was left of the burnt-out vehicle. The first thing that stood out to the fire expert was the fact that the driver's seat had been nearly completely burned up in the fire. Just the bare metal framework of the seat was left. And what usually happens in a burnt-out vehicle where someone is occupying the driver's seat, there's always some remnants of that person, either some of their bodily fluids or remains left in the seat. But there was no evidence of that in the driver's seat. Next, the ignition switch 
the fuel lines, the battery, the starter, all of the things that could have potentially been the source of the fire, none of those components were found to have been the cause. And looking at the entire vehicle, the arson expert was able to rule out this fire having been an accident. Some of the debris was collected from the fire and put in airtight containers and taken back to the forensics lab. They placed some activated charcoal strips inside the containers and then heated them up. The strips were removed from them and put inside test tubes that contained a solvent, and those strips were put through machines to determine what components that charcoal strip picked up. The testing revealed that the debris contained a significant amount of lighter fluid. So now they're certain that this was no accident. This was an arson and a murder. It wasn't too long after investigators on the case got word that the arson expert determined that the fire was intentionally set, that they received some information from none other than Molly's own sister. She had gone over to Molly's house to visit her and the kids when something totally weird and creepy happened. She had gone into the bathroom located inside the master bedroom of the house, and when she came back out, she noticed a man laying inside Molly's closet. She couldn't see his head or his face because of the way that he was positioned, but she could see part of his lower back and his legs, and the only thing he had on were boxers. She hurried back into the kitchen and was like, um, there's a guy asleep in your closet. And Molly was like, what? No, there isn't. And the sisters went back into the room and checked again. And like Molly had said, nobody was there. And everything after that just got totally weird. Because now investigators are thinking that maybe Molly had something to do with Clay's death. And this person hiding in the closet is somebody that she was having an affair with. About five months after the car fire, investigators got the results from the mitochondrial DNA test on the bone marrow extracted from the hip bone, and they were stunned to find that the DNA did not belong to Clay Daniels. So this raised even more questions in this already bizarre case. Where is Clay Daniels, and more importantly, who is this person that burned up in the car? In order to try and figure out what the heck was going on here, investigators decided to keep an eye on Molly for a few days to see what, if anything, that she was up to when she thought nobody was watching. For the first few days, Molly seemed to be going about her normal routine with work and the children. But then, investigators following her spotted Molly meeting up with that new boyfriend I had mentioned a few minutes ago. They found out his name was Jake Gregg. They watched as Molly got into his car and they headed over to a nearby Taco Bell. So the surveillance team decided to go inside to try and get a closer look as to what was going on here with Molly and her new man. One of the detectives approached the table and he looked straight into that man's face, and his immediate thought was, this is Clay freaking Daniels. So he confronted him right there on the spot, and called him out. I know who you are. And the man tried showing him an ID card that said Jake Gregg on it, 
And the detective was like, you really think I'm that stupid? Come on, get up. You're under arrest. This guy is so stupid. The only thing that Clay did to attempt to alter his appearance was he dyed his hair a little bit darker. And that was about it. At first, Molly told investigators that she had no idea that her husband had attempted to fake his own death, not until he showed back up at home a month after the crash and confessed to her what had actually happened. As she was completely in the dark, and all of this came out as a shock to her, completely out of left field, had no clue, didn't see it coming, no idea. As Clay was coming clean about what he had done, he did admit that it was him that Molly's sister spotted hiding in that closet while she was visiting that time. Well, duh. <laughs> and he was able to skedaddle out of the way when Molly raised her voice loud enough for him to be jolted awake and he was able to move into another hiding spot into the bedroom. What a couple of idiots, right? So what exactly were these two dum-dums planning on doing? Well, they were banking on that life insurance money payout to come through, and they were going to take the money and head down to Mexico and hide out there for a while. Clay was going to have some cosmetic surgery procedures done in order to change his look, and Molly, not to be left out, was planning on getting a nip and tuck here and there around her tummy. But all of that was depending on that insurance money. Suspicions were raised so early on because this plan was so harebrained that things never even got that far. While Clay was being questioned, they needed to know one very important thing. Who was the person that burned up in their car? Clay had flat out refused to provide any information as to the identity of the person that was inside the car when it was set on fire. And of course, it was really important to figure that out because they're thinking that they've got a murder on their hands here on top of all the other stupid crap that this guy and his wife have done thus far. But Clay did eventually fess up to what he had done to a cellmate. And in one of the most disturbing aspects of this case, one of the most disturbing things we've ever covered on this show, really, Clay told his cellmate that he actually dug up a grave he had taken the corpse out of it, reburied everything, and placed the body inside the car and lit it on fire. I mean, is this guy for real? Can you imagine how gruesome that was? This guy, it blows my mind. He was too lazy to do anything meaningful with his life. But he's going to go through all this nonsense, robbing a grave, pulling a corpse out of a casket, placing that corpse in his car, and driving around town with it to plan out this staged car accident and arson. I mean, you have the wherewithal to do that, but you can't get out there and find a job. And at the same time, he's supposedly supposed to be the stay-at-home dad, which is fine, but I'm pretty sure this arrangement wasn't because Clay wanted to fully embrace fatherhood and immerse himself in the upbringing of his children. And it probably had more to do with the fact that he didn't want to get off his ass and do anything. Investigators decided to take a look around at the cemetery that was closest to the location of the car fire, assuming that Clay 
really didn't want to be driving around for an extended period of time with a decomposed dead body in the car. And as they searched, they did find a grave that looked as if it had recently been disturbed, though it was pretty close to the main entrance of the cemetery nearby. The grave belonged to a woman named Charlotte Davis. She had passed away about six months earlier at the age of 81. So law enforcement had Charlotte's grave exhumed, and sure enough, her coffin was empty. So now they know they've got Clay caught red-handed in all of this, but what they really needed to figure out was if Molly had any kind of involvement. She was denying it, but they're not so sure that she had no idea that her husband was planning this whole thing out on his own. She told investigators that she was just as stunned as they were, and she had stuck to that story for quite some time. But once they had a chance to look at Molly's work computer, investigators were hoping they'd be able to retrieve some information that might implicate her in the whole scheme. But because six months had passed since the accident, they really weren't quite sure they'd be able to retrieve anything useful because over time, things on a computer get overwritten. Due to a stroke of luck, Molly's work computer got a virus just before the accident. And what that virus did was it kept a record of every single keystroke and every window that Molly opened and dropped that information to a text file and saved it. So the computer analyst searched the hard drive for keywords and found searches for things like death by fire, an identifiable body, police procedures, how police identify burned bodies, city cemetery, getting cemetery, Phillips Funeral Home, using x-rays, identification process, body destroyed in fire, teeth and identification, when are teeth unidentifiable, fire, death, by fire with no body, no body left after fire accident, body burned so badly it's unidentifiable, vehicle fire with no body, body damaged so bad it's unidentifiable, vehicle fires involving corpses, Texas body identification, Texas burned body, teeth destroyed by fire, cremation, 1500 degrees Fahrenheit, cremation process. So yeah, it's pretty incriminating. And to investigators, it proved that she knew what was going on from the very beginning and she had done her homework. Molly's mom even said she can't believe her daughter was this stupid. Investigators believe that Clay and Molly planned the whole crime together from the beginning, and they believe that Molly was there with him every step of the way. They looked through obituaries so they could try and find someone who hadn't been dead for too long, but was also elderly so that that person wouldn't have many visitors coming to the gravesite. And that is how they ended up choosing Charlotte's. Once Molly was faced with all the evidence, she went ahead and pleaded guilty to insurance fraud and hindering Clay's apprehension and was given a sentence of 20 years. Clay pleaded guilty to insurance fraud, arson, and desecration of a corpse. He was given a sentence of 30 years, plus his original case, the one where he was given 30 days in prison, well, he got resentenced for that too, and he was slapped with an additional 20 years. 
Clay became eligible for parole in 2014, but so far he's been denied. He has a projected release date of 2034 when he's about 53 years old. I searched for Molly and it appears as though she's been released. So that case, when I woke up and saw that a few nights ago, it reminded me of one that I had read about and watched also in Forensic Files some time back. And it's a story that I wanted to take a closer look at. And it too involved a man wanting to fake his death in order to collect on an insurance policy. But this plot involved a couple of failed entrepreneurs, a neurologist, and a real death this time. And that's what we're going to talk about today in this 126th episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of the Physician and the Fraudsters. Dr. Richard Pride Boggs was a neurologist who earned his Ph.D. from Harvard University. According to a timeline on ForensicFilesNow.com, Dr. Boggs helped to create Satellite Health Systems, one of the first HMOs in the United States. So his work was certainly groundbreaking. But as Satellite Health Systems did flourish, it failed to turn a profit, leaving Dr. Boggs millions of dollars in debt. By 1977, he was forced to file for bankruptcy, and within a year, his wife, Lola, left their marriage of 20 years and took the couple's four children with her. Not long after the breakdown of the marriage, Dr. Boggs moved out of their mansion and into a West Hollywood condo, at which time he started living a very different lifestyle that included late-night parties, bars, clubs, and meeting and becoming involved with young men. Dr. Boggs was still practicing medicine in his office in Glendale, but continued to struggle financially. In 1981, his ex-wife had him brought back into court for more than $30,000 in unpaid child support. But over the next seven years, Dr. Boggs continued to indulge himself splurging on his own extravagant lifestyle, still driving around in a Rolls Royce, all with unpaid child support. Dr. Boggs was deep in debt. And during this time and into the early to mid-80s, a number of medical facilities had barred Dr. Boggs from working with them as he had been accused of performing numerous unnecessary surgeries and billing patients and their insurance for the work that he performed. Though he is still able to continue to practice medicine for some reason, I'll explain more about that later on. But you'd think that he would have his medical license taken away for doing unnecessary surgeries, but okay. Anyway, Dr. Boggs on the surface appeared to be legitimate, at least to those on the outside looking in, but the reality was by the mid to late 80s, the doctor's life was a mess. So on the morning of Saturday, April 16th, 1988, a call came in to 911 from Dr. Boggs' office. He was calling to report that he was seeing a patient that morning and the man suddenly collapsed and died. 
and it appeared to him that the man had suffered a massive cardiac episode. He explained to the first responders that he was administering an electrocardiogram or an EKG, but he had left the examination room and when he returned, he found that his patient had fallen down onto the floor. There wasn't anything that paramedics could do when they arrived just after 7 a.m. The man was deceased. Dr. Boggs told the paramedics that his patient's name was Melvin Eugene Hansen, that he went by Gene and he was 42 years old and he was a longtime patient of his. In his wallet, he had a couple of credit cards that bore his name along with a business that he owned listed on the credit cards as Just Sweats. And I'll talk more about that later on too. He also had a birth certificate in his wallet also confirming that his name was indeed Gene Hansen. Okay, so right off the bat here, we've got some weird stuff going on. Even to just us run-of-the-mill armchair detectives here, there are three or four things that don't sit well with us. One is that this doctor is seeing a patient so early in the morning on a Saturday, giving him an EKG. Now, later on, we're going to talk more about Dr. Boggs's medical practices and that might explain why he thought that this wouldn't be too suspicious but still to me it's weird. Paramedics arrived at 7.15 in the morning. That means that Gene got there maybe around 7 likely even earlier to supposedly set up for this exam to fill out paperwork etc. And I did read one report that Dr. Boggs said that he met Gene at his office at 5 that morning. And I find it strange that a doctor would be seeing a patient that early on a Saturday. Now I get it. It happens. Doctors have their own private practices. They can schedule appointments whenever they want, especially if they've had a long-standing doctor-patient relationship. Okay, it can be a thing. But I've known a couple of doctors through the years, personally, not in a doctor-patient capacity. And the one thing that they seem to have in common is that they tend to be pretty routine and pretty regimented. They begin seeing patients starting at either 8 or 8.30 a.m. sharp, and they have a set time when they will see their final patient of the day, and it's Monday through Friday. And they really don't ever abandon their personal routine. I knew a surgeon and his surgeries were always scheduled pretty early in the morning. He said that's when most people are at their sharpest, most alert state of mind right after waking up. So I find it strange that Dr. Boggs would get up before dawn on a Saturday to give an EKG exam to a patient, but okay. It's also worth pointing out that Dr. Boggs, remember I said he was a neurologist, He works with disorders of the brain and the nervous system and the spinal cord. So we have to ask, why is he seeing a patient who is complaining of chest pains? He is not a cardiologist, though it is not out of the ordinary for a neurologist to give an EKG to look for heart problems that might cause a stroke in a patient. But otherwise, a neurologist would not typically treat a patient that is experiencing chest pains. And another thing that was strange was there was no other staff here in his office. There was no receptionist. 
There was no medical assistant. There was no nurse. And the doctor is almost never the one that's going to check a patient in, right? To take their weight, to take their blood pressure, things like that. It's always their assistant or their nurse. He was the only person there, and I found that to be strange. But then again, he could have been doing this as a favor for a long-time patient and offering his own time. And finally, the birth certificate in the wallet bugged me too. I suppose if someone doesn't have an ID or a driver's license, he or she may stick their birth certificate in their wallet, but it's not a common practice. And this is a guy who had a couple of credit cards with him too, including an American Express for his business. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me as to why he wouldn't have his ID in his wallet either. But those were not the things that stood out to the paramedics when they arrived. You see, their suspicions were piqued because when they attempted to check Gene Hansen for signs of life, his skin was cold to the touch and rigor mortis had already set in. And when taking a closer look at Gene's face, it appeared as though some of the small blood vessels had been broken, causing a sort of red splotchiness in his face. And you know, the first responders, the paramedics, as well as the police officers at the scene, they've encountered many a dead body over the course of their career. And to them, it was clear that the 911 call was made quite some time after Gene Hansen had died. Dr. Boggs did attempt to make the claim that when he called 911 earlier in the morning when Gene first collapsed that the line was busy. Police were skeptical of this too. Look, if you're familiar with the city of Glendale, California, then you know that year after year, it consistently ranks in the top 10 when it comes to safest cities in the United States. There is hardly any crime. The city is very quiet at night. 911 is not ringing off the hook. And they know that Dr. Boggs was not getting a busy signal when he dialed. When Jean was transported to the medical examiner's office in order to make a more accurate determination as to when it was that he died, the medical examiner took the temperature of Jean's liver and compared it to the temperature of the room that he died in. For every hour that passes, the temperature of the liver drops 1.5 degrees. The room temperature was 72 degrees Fahrenheit or 22 degrees Celsius. The temperature of Jean's liver was 87 degrees Fahrenheit or 30.5 degrees Celsius. So if we do the math, that meant Jean had been dead for roughly six or seven hours. And this would have placed his time of death between two and three in the morning. So as many as five hours before Dr. Boggs called 911. The first officers on the scene also noticed that it did not appear at any point in time to Dr. Boggs attempt to administer CPR, which is something he would have been fully able and capable of doing in a situation like this. And he said that he had been attempting CPR for a while. But that doesn't really bother me as much as all the other weird things going on. The officers on the scene said that Dr. Boggs did not look like he was out of breath. He did not look as though he had performed any kind of life-saving procedures. He was not sweating and he was still very neatly dressed and groomed. But like I said, that for me is neither here nor there. 
honestly, there's way more suspicious things that's going on here, way more than his appearance. Now, I'm assuming that Dr. Boggs was banking on everyone and everyone meaning police and paramedics. He's banking on them accepting what he is saying as gospel due to his credentials as a physician. But one of the first officers on the scene, whose dad was a doctor, and having been to scenes involving dead people, it was pretty clear to him that the story that Dr. Boggs was trying to sell wasn't what actually happened. At the same time, the officer was going to give the doctor some benefit of the doubt, seeing he has seemed to have been a well-respected doctor. He thought maybe there's something else going on here that perhaps the doctor was embarrassed about. Maybe this was meant to be a discreet liaison between the two men, something that the doctor had been hiding, and then he concocted this whole story in order to hide what he was doing from his family and friends and colleagues. The officer also thought maybe perhaps the men had either been using drugs together, that things got out of hand, and Gene actually overdosed, and the doctor was attempting to save himself and his career. So the officer is considering other possible scenarios and explanations for this. And then another strange thing happened. When investigators executed a search warrant of the doctor's office, they found an entire drawer full of sex toys right there in the cabinets of Dr. Boggs's examination room where he sees his patients, the room where Jean Hansen died a drawer of sex toys. So that kind of bolstered the possibility of this having been a possible sexual liaison gone wrong. Well, as it turns out, just two weeks before Jean's death in the doctor's office, a report had been made to the police about Dr. Boggs about an incident that happened to a man named Barry Pomeroy in the very same room. And I'll get to that in just a moment. I wanted to pause here and talk a little more in depth about Dr. Boggs. In both his personal and professional life, the doctor had been experiencing somewhat of a downward spiral, and I found a really interesting and in-depth article about him in the Los Angeles Times archives from back in 1989 entitled The Rise and Fall of Dr. Boggs, written by Doug Smith. So, Barry Pomeroy had shown up at the Glendale Police Station in early April of 1988 wanting to file a complaint about Dr. Richard Boggs. He said that they had met at the Spike, which was a West Hollywood bar. They had dinner, they drove to Glendale, and the doctor said he wanted to stop in at his office. That evening ended on a good note, and the men parted ways. Then a couple nights later, the men went out again, they had dinner at a restaurant again in Glendale. And as they were driving around, Dr. Boggs asked Barry if he wanted an EKG. Kind of an odd thing, I guess. But hey, why not, right? Just to make sure the ticker is going strong, I suppose. So as they were in the examination room, Boggs sort of extended his arms as if maybe he wanted to share a hug or perhaps this was the beginnings of an intimate moment. So Barry went in for the hug, but when he did, Dr. Boggs suddenly pressed a stun gun into the back of his neck 
and delivered a shock that dropped him to the ground immediately. Barry said at first he thought that maybe the doctor was being kind of kinky, but it soon became clear that Boggs was attempting to kill him, so he managed to pull himself together enough to defend himself against the attack, at which time Dr. Boggs gave up. And you know, at the time, Dr. Boggs is 55 years old. And I don't know how old Barry was at the time, but clearly he was prepared for a fight, more so than the doctor, considering that he had just been stun-gunned. But Dr. Boggs backed down, apologized, and even offered to treat the wounds that he had caused on Bruce's neck. Eventually, Boggs took him home, and the next morning, Bruce went down and filed his police report. The district attorney, however, claimed that Bruce's story lacked evidence. He didn't think he'd be able to corroborate his story, especially since he was making these allegations against a very well-respected doctor who had been what he called an outstanding member of the community, having worked as a physician in the area for more than 20 years, so the district attorney refused to file the charges. And that, I just, I don't know, I don't think that the district attorney wanted to get involved in this situation, and he wanted to write it off as kind of a lover's quarrel of sorts, but it would be just two weeks later that Jean Hansen would end up dead in Dr. Boggs's office. Dr. Boggs wanted to sign off on Jean's death certificate himself, but he was not allowed to. As I mentioned earlier, Jean was brought over to the medical examiner's office, and despite what officers on the scene and first responders were thinking and the things that were making them suspicious, the medical examiner ended up ruling Jean's death by natural causes. I don't know if the medical examiner was just being lazy or not being thorough, or if he knew Jean died while seeing his own doctor and took the doctor at his word that things happened the way that he said they happened because he didn't want to undermine a fellow physician. I don't know, but it was ruled a natural death, which really had investigators scratching their heads because I really don't know how much influence or input law enforcement has when it comes to the determination of the medical examiner but it probably isn't wrong to assume that doctors don't like to be questioned or second-guessed, especially by someone who isn't a doctor. So I get the feeling that there wasn't much investigators could do at that point. The following day, Gene Hansen's business partner, a 26-year-old man named John Hawkins, arrived in California from Ohio. He was the only person known to be Jean's next of kin as far as anyone knew. They were business partners, therefore they had insurance policies on one another. Hawkins arrived at the medical examiner's office. He positively identified Jean. He claimed the body and immediately sent him off to be cremated. When Hawkins received the ashes, he scattered them into the ocean off the coast of California. By the first week of July, about two and a half months later, John Hawkins received a check for $1 million. The insurance payout on his partner, and that was that. Case closed, right? Not so fast. 
A couple of days after Don Hawkins went skipping off to the bank to cash in on his $1 million check, investigators' suspicions were confirmed that something was not right with what happened in Dr. Boggs' office a couple of months back. Part of what was collected from Gene's body at the time of his autopsy were his fingerprints. And as things used to move at a much slower pace than they do today, it took that amount of time for them to receive the report back from the DMV that the man who died at Dr. Box's office was not Melvin Eugene Hansen. It would take another three months to figure out who that dead man was. John Hawkins and Gene Hansen were in fact business partners in Ohio, though Hansen was originally from California. They were also in a relationship, though there were rumors that the younger and somewhat handsome, at least by 80s standards, I guess, Hawkins was known to prefer women, but was using Gene, who was 16 years older than him, for, I guess, maybe money to invest in the business or sugar daddy, whatever. In 1986, the men opened a chain of stores called Just Sweats, where they sold workout clothes. If you go on YouTube, you can see the commercials that they made. Hawkins himself starred in them, and they're really like those 80s-style pastel-colored shorts and sweatshirts and headbands. It's really dated stuff. And they had really been doing well, at least for a period of time. They eventually expanded to 22 store locations, both in Ohio and Kentucky. And they, too, both drove fancy cars and were living a pretty lavish lifestyle. It was sometime during the 80s that both Hawkins and Hansen became acquainted with Dr. Boggs, and Hansen became a patient of his. I've read reports that both men were, but Hawkins was a lot younger. Hansen was the older one and had some health issues, I guess. But the business partners eventually began to mishandle and mismanage their burgeoning business. They started selling off their store assets to obtain cash to maintain their lifestyles. And it doesn't take an expert in accounting to know that bleeding your business dry is eventually going to cause it to implode on itself, especially if there are loans out there, investors, if they owe vendors and suppliers. And within a year, Just Sweats was completely underwater. So the two men began to hatch a plan. Gene Hansen began taking out life insurance policies on himself and listed John Hawkins as the beneficiary. Now, all they needed to do was figure out a way to kill Gene off without really killing him off so they could collect. That's when they recruited Dr. Boggs into their plan. If he could come up with a body and pass that body off as Gene Hansen, then they'd all be able to collect. After Gene's supposed death and following his funeral, Hawkins came back to Ohio. He was Gene's only beneficiary, so everything he had went to him and only him, including that entire $1 million policy. Not too long after Hawkins went back to Ohio, he went off the grid. He drove to the Columbus airport. He parked his Mercedes-Benz there. He bought a plane ticket and pretty much vanished. And we'll come back to John Hawkins in a little bit. Meanwhile, back at the insurance company that had paid out on the policy on Gene, one of their agents was trying to tie up some loose ends on some of their files, and that included Gene's. 
The representative noticed that they did not have a copy of Jean's driver's license, so she called and requested a copy to be sent. And that's when word started spreading that the thumbprint on Jean's California driver's license did not match the person whose fingerprint had been taken at the autopsy. It was about five months after police were called to Dr. Boggs' office that investigators discovered the true identity of the dead man in his office. His name was Ellis Henry Green. He was 32 years old and he worked as a bookkeeper for an accountant in Burbank and he lived in North Hollywood. His aunt had reported him missing some months earlier. Investigators visited Ellis's family and showed them pictures of him in Dr. Box's office and they were able to confirm that it was indeed Ellis. So Dr. Boggs was brought in for questioning about all this. When he was told the man who died in his office was not Gene Hansen, Dr. Boggs acted surprised. The man who died in his examination room had been a patient of his for many years, and he always knew him to be Gene Hansen. In order to make it appear as though Hansen had long been a patient of his, he provided the medical records that he had on file for Gene which included three previous EKGs that he had said he conducted over the years. But when investigators took a closer look at the EKG strips, it became clear that it was actually only one EKG exam. The strip had been torn into three separate pieces, each one labeled with a different date, and placed in his file to make it appear as though that Gene had a history of seeing Dr. Boggs about his heart condition. When investigators lined up the EKG strips end-to-end, they fit together like a puzzle. So this was, in fact, only one EKG test, not a series of three taken over an extended period of time. In light of what the investigation was uncovering, they decided to get a second opinion on the autopsy report because, remember, the death had been ruled by natural causes. When the report was reviewed by another pathologist, it was noted that there was a certain amount of discoloration in Ellis Green's face and in his fingertips, which can be difficult to notice and often disappears pretty quickly after death. But this discoloration was indicative of the victim having been suffocated. And the police, who were the first ones on the scene, noted the same kind of splotches on his face as well, leading them to believe that the death was not natural. Investigators now believe that Dr. Boggs was in on this plot to fake Gene Hansen's death in order to pull off an insurance scam and that he was in cahoots with Hansen and his partner, John Hawkins. Dr. Boggs was arrested in February of 1989 and was subsequently charged with murder, conspiracy, grand theft, fraud, and assault with a stun gun. They believe Gene Hansen was present at the time that Ellis was murdered that he helped Dr. Boggs carry out the killing and provided his credit cards and birth certificate to plant on Ellis's body. The murder for financial gain carried the possibility of Boggs being sentenced to death. The very much alive Gene Hansen was also taken into custody. I will get more into the details of his arrest in a little bit. So unlike co-conspirators Hansen, a one-time department store shoe supplier, and Hawkins, a high school dropout, Dr. Boggs had a distinguished career at one time. 
I touched on some of it earlier in this episode. Other physicians who had known and worked with Dr. Boggs said that he was nothing short of brilliant at what he did. He had a passion, and he was driven, and he very much was trusted by all of his patients. For his work with satellite health systems that I had discussed earlier, Dr. Boggs had received a commendation from then-President Richard Nixon. But then his life just sort of went off the rails pretty much in every which way possible. His marriage crumbled. He was drowning in debt. He was being sued left and right. And instead of going into his 50s trying to figure out how to straighten his life out, Dr. Boggs decided to indulge in a lifestyle that it seems as though he had felt he had missed out on, and that included him coming out of the closet. Ever since Dr. Boggs, who was born in 1933, which was the era of the Great Depression, ever since he was a child, he had aspired to be a doctor. He had moved from Casper, Wyoming to Glendale, California in 1939 when his father's company moved there. He went to Glendale High School, and then he graduated from UCLA in 1956 with a degree in zoology. He wanted to go to medical school, but did not have the money to pay for it. So a friend of the family loaned him the money to get him through, which Boggs eventually paid back. The same family friend also loaned him money later on to start a business, but that money was never returned, though that friend of the family harbored no hard feelings about it. Then Boggs attended what is today known as Loma Linda Medical School, located near the city of San Bernardino. Just before he was finishing up in 1961, he met and married his wife, Lola, a math teacher. She had provided Boggs a great deal of support as he finished up his work in medical school. Shortly thereafter, the couple adopted two boys who were not related, but very close in age, and from then on referred to them as their twins. Eventually, Dr. Boggs was accepted into a residency at Boston City Hospital through Harvard Medical School, where he studied neurology. He finished up his final year of his residency in Los Angeles at the County General Hospital. Once he was settled back in California, he and his wife had two more children of their own and moved into a Tudor-style mansion in the city now known as La Cunada Flint Ridge. Then in 1968, Dr. Boggs accepted a job as the head of the neurology department at Rancho Los Amigos Hospital in the city of Downey, and there his career continued to flourish. But soon it started to become apparent that Dr. Boggs's ambition was outgrowing the hospital for which he worked. He wanted to branch out beyond the limitations of the patients he was seeing there, and eventually Dr. Boggs made developing his own private practice his priority and pulled away from his involvement with the hospital. Within four years of accepting the job at Rancho Los Amigos, Boggs walked away from the position in order to pursue a private practice where he could pretty much run his own program how he saw fit, which was to see as many patients as he possibly could. He was going from hospital to hospital, making rounds, helping in surgery, consulting, He'd often start at 5 in the morning and not finish up until close to midnight. Some saw this as devotion to his work and to his patients. Others saw it as a way for Dr. Boggs to pad his income, which the latter seems to be the case based on what we've learned thus far about him. 
and he started racking up complaints, including Dr. Boggs is failing to return patients' calls and failing to show up for appointments. As it turned out, Dr. Boggs was trying to dive into what the LA Times referred to as medical capitalism. He wanted to become the primary medical care provider for as many as 100,000 patients. You see, in the 1970s, medical care had become an issue on a national level. Senator Edward Kennedy had been floating the idea of national health insurance, but then-President Nixon was not on board with that idea, wanting preventative health care to be a thing within the private sector. And this is where Dr. Boggs assembled some investors and doctors and developed his satellite health systems, one of the early HMOs to be developed in Southern California. He had a network of 22 doctors that were tethered to an office in Hollywood and to Dr. Boggs's office in Glendale. Boggs was the president of this corporation, and he hired a director of development who was tasked with recruiting clients. At its peak, there were approximately 25,000 patients registered with satellite health systems. President Nixon, impressed with the health care plan, actually called up Dr. Boggs and told him, we don't want the Kennedy giveaway. We want the private industry to take care of it. Whatever you want, you have. With the backing of President Nixon, Boggs and company attempted to negotiate with the Department of Health to try and get some federal financial backing, but they were never able to come to terms. There were lots of strings attached when it came to dealing with the government. They were the brains behind the whole thing, and they felt like their ideas and their plans for this healthcare system was better than anything that the government had to contribute, and figured that they'd have people throwing money at them without the government's help, without having to jump through the government's hoops. Well, the country as a whole hit an economic downslide in 1973, and that all but killed satellite health systems. They had a tremendously huge payroll with all the doctors in their network. They had offices up and down the Southern California coast, but they never had the kinds of membership enrollment that they needed in order to turn a profit or to break even. As for the four years that they were in business, they lost money just about every month that they were in operation. Dr. Boggs was forced to declare bankruptcy in 1976. He owed millions of dollars to so many entities, people, doctors, agencies, banks, investors, and friends. After that, Dr. Boggs was really never the same driven and passionate person that he had once been. In 1974, Dr. Boggs had failed to pay his dues to the American Medical Association and then with the American Neurological Association also and he would never be registered with either association again. And then the doctor was hit with an onslaught of lawsuits stemming from the collapse of satellite health systems, including one where one of the physicians that he recruited to join his network as a provider in April of 1973, at which time it was already going downhill quickly, Boggs had told her that they had liquid assets totaling $1 million dollars, So she turned her entire practice over to him, including her office, all of her equipment, and her patients. In return, she would receive $3,000 a month in salary, medical insurance, and a car. She never did get the car, and her salary was discontinued within a few months. 
Eventually, there came a day when she showed up for work and found all the locks had been changed and she was unable to access anything that was once hers. Some of her patients told her that Dr. Boggs said that she moved and that he was their new physician. She sued Boggs and won a judgment of $57,000. Boggs was pretty much living on borrowed money, going from friend to friend, asking for loans. Meanwhile, in the background, Dr. Boggs's marriage to Lola was crumbling too. Friends of the couple really didn't feel like they were a good match to begin with. Their lifestyles were so different. Dr. Boggs had a need to be noticed by way of being flashy and pretentious, while his wife Lola was much more down to earth. A simple life would have sufficed. And frankly, Dr. Boggs's life had become so much more complicated and strange than Lola was really willing to deal with anymore. She simply didn't have the energy or desire to keep trying. And slowly, Dr. Boggs evolved from living the suburban life in Glendale to indulging in the fast and exciting West Hollywood lifestyle. And soon, he all but walked away from the church-going life that he had once been a part of. He came out as gay, and his entire world was consumed with meeting men at any number of his favorite clubs and bars. In 1976, he purchased a condo in West Hollywood with a younger doctor who worked in his office. But no matter what Dr. Boggs was doing from that point forward, he was always surrounded by young men. Eventually, the relationship with the man that he had purchased the condo with fell apart. Dr. Boggs attempted to buy him out, but a judge would end up ordering that they put the place on the market. And when it did eventually sell... No less than a dozen creditors went after Dr. Boggs' share from it. Despite being in financial ruin, Dr. Boggs managed to also purchase a home in Laguna Beach, and he also leased a condo in Glendale, and from the sounds of it, he just kept his various places stocked with the assortment of men that he always wanted or needed to have around him. These men even started visiting Dr. Boggs at his medical offices, which many patients found somewhat off-putting. It was obvious that these young men were not there to see Dr. Boggs in any kind of professional capacity. And along with the kind of lifestyle Dr. Boggs was now leading, there came a time when he started to become concerned about his personal safety. One of his patients had witnessed Boggs being threatened and ended up purchasing him six stun guns. Eventually, Dr. Boggs armed himself with a handgun because of yet another disgruntled patient. During some time later, during some child support hearings, Lola testified that Boggs had threatened her life on numerous occasions, telling her that he could pay someone to do it for him. Now, remember earlier when I said Dr. Boggs was banned from practicing at a couple of local area hospitals for performing unnecessary procedures on patients? Well, the reason why he was able to keep doing his thing is because at the time, and I'm not sure if the same goes for now, but when doctors are disciplined, it stays confidential and hospitals do not provide details about it. All the reports are sent to the medical board and those only stay on record for three years unless criminal charges are filed. 
The only reason that some of the details of him performing unnecessary procedures is known is because of a partial leak of one malpractice case against him. But Dr. Boggs kept going. Despite having some damage done to his reputation, he continued to see patients, but also started doing some legal consulting and being paid to appear in court as an expert. And he didn't quite give up on the healthcare system he had once tried to set up in the 1970s. He tried again in the 80s by attempting to negotiate with Labor Union Teamsters Local 890 to open a clinic specifically to serve their members. But that fell apart even before it got started. And this would ultimately lead Dr. Boggs into bankruptcy for a second time in 1984. Saddled with more than four dozen liens and judgments, Dr. Boggs had gone through a revolving door of attorneys in order to fend it all off, more than a million dollars in debt, and hiding from the marshals who were looking to collect his Rolls Royce. His offices were eventually locked down, the IRS effectively shutting Boggs out from his entire practice. But he tapped his friends once again, borrowed a whole bunch of money, and reopened a new office across the street from the one that the IRS had seized. And I'm certain it's no surprise that Dr. Boggs' patient load had dropped off significantly as his personal and professional life continued to spiral. His patients were mostly comprised of a handful of young men that he'd met in a social capacity and some older patients who still remembered the good doctor Boggs had once been. He was also investigated for the quantities of drugs that he had been prescribing, and when his office was subject to search in late 1988, the things required to manufacture methamphetamines were found. His roommate at the time, who was employed in his offices as a physical therapist, later testified that Dr. Boggs instructed him to try and make the drug, but he was really not able to figure it out. Eventually, the family of one of his patients filed a report with the medical board when that patient died of a drug overdose in October of 1988, alleging that Dr. Boggs was the one who prescribed the drugs and therefore was responsible for causing the overdose. Along with everything else, Dr. Boggs was evicted from the condo that he had leased in Glendale. Along with the lease was a deal for Boggs to purchase the condo eventually, But he never did, and the owners, who described him as a terrible tenant who destroyed the place, had no choice but to have him evicted. Boggs attempted to stall the eviction by telling the owners that he was coming into some money, a lot of money very soon, but it was too little too late. And this money that Boggs was supposedly going to come into, I believe he was talking about the insurance proceeds from the death of Gene Hansen. It is not clear exactly when Dr. Boggs became acquainted with Gene Hansen and John Hawkins. What is clear is that all three men had fallen on hard times pretty much all at the same time. Hansen was originally from California and he'd become a patient of Dr. Boggs, but even after he moved to Columbus, Ohio, he still continued to be a patient making appointments to see Dr. Boggs from time to time when he was in California. According to the Los Angeles Times, John Hawkins, who had once been a bartender at Studio 54 in New York, he was quite a ladies' man, but he also hustled men. 
His own mom described him as a gigolo. In 1985, Hansen and Hawkins opened up their own athletic clothing store called Just Sweats. And as I mentioned, it was wildly successful and they expanded very quickly to 22 stores. But in a way that was almost parallel to Dr. Boggs's demise, the two men simply could not be bothered with the responsibility of it all. They began liquidating their assets within a year of opening, and at the same time, Hansen purchased numerous life insurance policies, all of which listed Hawkins as the beneficiary. And obviously, the idea was to try and fake Hansen's death so Hawkins would be able to collect on the insurance. The plan included Dr. Boggs as much as a year before Ellis Green was actually killed. Phone records indicated that all three men had pretty much been in regular contact in that previous year. And every time they made another step towards carrying out their insurance fraud plan, there would be another flurry of phone calls between the men. Another component of the plan involved Gene Hansen starting to tell people that he was dying of AIDS, which wasn't true. He was not HIV positive, and he did not have AIDS. He also told everyone in Ohio that he was relocating to California, and prior to doing so, he signed everything he had over to John Hawkins. And the reason for doing that was to prevent anyone from his family coming forward and thwarting their plans by possibly wanting to see him after his death. Like, for example, if his mom came forward and saw the dead body and was like, that is not my son, which would essentially shut down their entire deal. As I mentioned previously, Dr. Box had tried and failed to procure a victim two weeks before Ellis Green's death, that man, Barry Pomeroy. I'm assuming that Dr. Boggs underestimated the fight a man 20 or more years younger than himself would put up for his life. So the second time around, Gene Hansen would be present to help. On the evening of April 15, 1988, Hansen and Boggs went to a place called the Bullet Club in North Hollywood, where they were looking for someone who was close enough in size and general appearance to Hansen. And that is when they spotted Ellis Green. The two of them quickly determined that Ellis ticked off all of their boxes when it came to their search of someone to be passed off as Gene Hansen. Though he was about 10 years younger, everything else matched up. He was white. He had this sort of male pattern balding going on. He was similar in size and stature. And not only that, the men somehow came to find out or were made aware that Ellis was HIV positive. Though how they came to know that information, I can't say for sure, I don't know. On top of that, on this evening, Ellis Green was also extremely intoxicated. Investigators could only surmise, based on what they were finding out about Ellis Green, is that Hansen and Boggs had targeted him, that he was a pretty sociable and friendly person. So whatever they did to get him to go along with whatever they said that they were going to do, Ellis apparently was game. But he had no idea what it was that he was actually walking into. And I've pretty much gone over what happened next. Ellis was lured to Dr. Boggs' office in Glendale, 
He was subdued and likely attacked by both Hansen and Boggs to make sure that this one didn't get away like Barry Pomeroy had two weeks earlier. And from what the medical examiner later stated, the men somehow suffocated Ellis. In some of the photos of Ellis laying on the floor in Dr. Boggs' office, there is a pillow under his feet, which is weird. But because there was not any sign that he had any injuries around his neck, it doesn't appear that he was manually strangled or strangled with a ligature. So this is only my guess, but I'm thinking that with the stun gun and the fact that Ellis's blood alcohol content was 0.28, which is like three times, three and a half times the legal limit, it probably wasn't difficult for the men to suffocate Ellis and I believe that they probably used that pillow. As I mentioned earlier, by the time Dr. Boggs dialed 911, Ellis had already been dead for several hours. He was cold to the touch, and rigor had set in. The problem was that the men needed to wait until a reasonable hour before the doctor would be able to call anyone into his office for an emergency. Any earlier would have been suspicious for a death in a doctor's office during a routine examination such as the one he had said he was doing for Ellis Green, or Gene Hansen as he called him. Early on in the episode, I had doubted that there are very many doctors out there that would have worked at 7 in the morning on a Saturday. But because Dr. Boggs had this reputation for pretty much running his office like a patient mill, this probably wasn't going to arouse that much suspicion. But the hour that Ellis died, around perhaps 2 or 3 in the morning, that would not have been believable at all. So the two men had to wait and just hope that the paramedics and everyone else would just buy the doctor's story simply because he was a doctor and would not question him or second-guess him. But really, there was too many suspicious things going on with Alice's death to just let everything go. When Dr. Boggs finally called 911, it was almost exactly at the same time that paramedics were responding that a man looking strikingly similar to Gene Hansen was checking into a hotel two blocks away from the doctor's office under an assumed name. That person who checked into the hotel started receiving calls from John Hawkins, who was still back in Ohio, waiting on word that the plan had been carried out. Eventually, the real Gene Hansen made his way back to Ohio. Paramedics and first responders, when they arrived, they saw Ellis on the ground in Dr. Boggs' office, along with the two credit cards and the birth certificate in his pocket, with Gene Hansen's name on everything. That's when Dr. Boggs laid out his story. This was his patient. His name was Gene Hansen. He's been a patient of his for a long time. He had received a call early in the morning that he was experiencing chest pains and wanted to come in for an examination. When he was preparing to give him the EKG, he had left the room for a moment. He heard a loud thud and came back to find Gene on the floor. He had called 911 earlier but said the line was busy, so he proceeded to administer CPR for a while before trying to call 911 again around 7. But by the time help arrived... Gene Hansen was long gone. The coroner had found Hansen to have an extremely high level of alcohol in his system. 
But other than that, there were no other drugs or substances in his body. With Boggs consulting the medical examiner in his work on Gene Hansen's autopsy as his primary physician, he noted a history of heart problems and that the death was caused by an inflammation of the heart, leading the coroner to rule the death by natural causes. The Glendale police did leave a note that the case was inconclusive, but otherwise they had no choice at that time but to close their investigation. Back in Ohio, John Hawkins immediately began applying pressure to one of the insurance companies that they had purchased the largest policy through, the one for $1 million. Within about two months of the death, the insurance paid him out. It was four days later when the claims rep working to close Hansen's case out received the thumbprint that she had requested, and it was then she realized that the prints did not match, at which time she contacted the Glendale Police Department and that opened up the murder investigation. Jean Hansen and John Hawkins both went on the run, leaving behind their faltering business, Just Sweats, and leaving behind Dr. Boggs, pretty much left holding the bag on a murder charge. Ellis Green was finally identified as the victim in September of 1988. He was originally from Southern California, and at the time of his death, he was living with an aunt in North Hollywood, working for a CPA in Burbank. It was only a matter of time before Boggs would be arrested and charged with Ellis's murder, and he was taken into custody in February of 1989. The same week that Dr. Boggs was arrested, Gene Hansen was also picked up at the Dallas-Fort Worth airport, having just arrived on a flight from Mexico. He was traveling using the alias Wolfgang von Snowden and it was clear that Hansen was still healing from cosmetic surgery scars from procedures that he had done to his face in order to alter his appearance. He had work done to his eyes, nose, chin, and he had some hair transplants completed. All of that was still healing, and he had just had those surgeries done while he was in Mexico. When he was detained, he attempted to deny that he was Gene Hansen, but among his belongings, he had several ID cards under various names, and he also had Ellis's identification card, too. And he also had a book entitled How to Create a New Identity. Fingerprints taken of him match the ones on file with the California DMV, positively identifying him as Gene Hansen. John Hawkins managed to stay on the run for several years following the arrests of his co-conspirators. And by the way, before they were arrested, John Hawkins and Gene Hansen were planning to pull off the scam again, but this time John Hawkins was going to attempt to fake his own death and they were going to try to collect another million dollars. But Gene Hansen was arrested before they could ever get that done. John Hawkins had this uncanny ability to alter his appearance drastically without very much effort. Just a little haircut and some facial hair growing in. When all of this first started, Hawkins had one of those wavy 80s mullets. He could cut his hair short, he could grow out a beard, throw on some glasses, and he looked like a completely different person. I've mentioned before he was kind of a hustler. He hustled men. He hustled women. 
And being that adaptable isn't always that easy, but he managed to pull it off pretty seamlessly. And he was able to elude capture for about three years. During that time, Hawkins pretty much traveled around the world. He had even landed himself on a spot on America's Most Wanted. And it just so happened that a woman that Hawkins had been romantically involved with in Amsterdam saw him on that program. She recognized him and she made the call, providing the tip authorities needed to track him down. They found him sailing around the Mediterranean off the coast of Italy on a catamaran named Carpe Diem. When he was approached by authorities there to take him into custody, Hawkins became really angry and defensive, telling them, you're making a big mistake, you've got the wrong guy here. He claimed his name was Bradley Bryan and he was a citizen of England and he provided a pretty legit looking passport. And I don't know if he was standing there trying to fake a British accent, but I wish I could have heard a sample of it to see how good or how bad it really was. But anyway, just like his old buddy Gene Hansen, once authorities ran his prints, they confirmed that he was who they suspected he was, John Hawkins. When all was said and done, Dr. Boggs and Gene Hansen were both convicted of Ellis's murder, as well as conspiracy and fraud. Both men were sentenced to life in prison without parole. Dr. Boggs died while being housed at Corcoran State Prison in 2003 of heart failure. At the time of his death, he was HIV positive and he had been diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer. He was 69 years old. Melvin Eugene Hansen, the last article I was able to find about him was in 2017 and it indicated that he was being housed at a correctional facility in San Luis Obispo. At the time, he was 75 years old, but when I conducted an inmate search, I got no results, so it leads me to believe that he has since passed away as well. As for John Hawkins, he was sentenced to 25 years to life with the possibility of parole in his role in Ellis's death though he received less time because he didn't actively participate in the murder itself. He was paroled in 2010. And in 2014, Hawkins conducted an interview with KCAL 9 News in Southern California, which is an affiliate of CBS. And he reported that much of his time in prison was spent working with at-risk teens. He was out doing the same thing, working with troubled youth and he was using his experience to help guide them down a better path than he chose. He admitted that by the time he was arrested, that all the attention and money that he was getting had gone to his head, and it simply wasn't a good place to be for a guy with a laundry list of character flaws. When it came to the insurance fraud plot, Hawkins said that the initial plan was for Dr. Box to procure a cadaver from a medical school to identify that body as Gene Hansen, to sign the death certificate, and to have that body sent over to a mortuary. Now, dreamers, it has always been my belief that Dr. Boggs did not have the ability anymore to get his hands on a cadaver that easily. I honestly don't know what it takes for him to have been able to do that, but based on what he did do, 
it seems like murder was the easier option. Hawkins claimed that he had no idea that a murder had taken place until authorities were contacted by the insurance company to inform them that the dead man was not Gene Hansen and that Dr. Boggs had killed a guy in his office. Hawkins said from that point, he panicked and he fled. When he was finally brought back from Italy, the O.J. Simpson trial was in full swing, so nobody even noticed when he made his way through his trial and conviction. He was finally granted parole after 20 years, and the parole board was presented with many letters of support from teens that he had counseled, their parents, as well as school officials. And the last I was able to find on him, he was living in San Diego in an RV park with his mom. And today, assuming he's still around, he is about 60 years old. And that will bring this 126th episode of California Dreaming to a close. Please come on over to our Facebook discussion group if you haven't done so yet and request to join. It is there we discuss all of the cases that we cover each week. We share our thoughts and opinions on those cases, but not only about our show, but we discuss other podcasts that you've listened to, documentaries that you've watched, books that you've read, as well as current news stories. We post about our pets, our dogs, and our cats, and whatever other animals you have. We post funny memes, so please come over and share. You can also go over to the show's Facebook page. You can like that page and leave us a review or a recommendation. You can also follow us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. This week, I'd like to wish a very happy birthday to Lindsay T. on January 2nd, Clara L., Emily H., and Jody at the Somebody Somewhere podcast on January 6th, and Corey H. on January 9th. California Dreaming is brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network, a podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to with a roster of shows with content, including true crime, history, sports, entertainment, gaming, and social media. So go on over to our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. There you will find links to all of the podcasts on our network, as well as a direct link to our merchandise store on TeePublic. And I want to thank you for making those purchases and sharing your pictures on social media. Not only are there t-shirts, there are coffee mugs and hoodies and phone cases and notebooks, all sorts of stuff. So go on and take a look at that. Again, the website is www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you all again so much for taking the time to listen. I'm your host, Roseanne. And until next time, sweet dreams. Okay, I'm done. Come here, babies. <laughs>
Babies, what's wrong? Were you trapped in the room? <laughs> Olivia, is that you? Oh my god, hi, how are you? Honestly, pretty bummed out. What about? I was just reading about how the US government hired Nazis after the Nuremberg trials. Oh my god, I know. Can you believe it? I'm kind of on a sad binge too. I <laughs> I stayed up late last night reading about the influenza pandemic of 1918. God, that was devastating. I think I know the book you're talking about too. It's on my list. I've just been really hooked on documentaries right now. Have you seen that Flat Earth documentary? No, no, but I did watch the Fire Festival documentary. It was, it was insane. <laughs> Almost as insane as the fact that slavery is still legal in the U.S. I'm... I'm so... Is that a baseline? Hi, I'm Brooke. Are you someone that likes consuming media that feeds your wildest fears? No, no, wait. You Are you a consumer of the macabre and disturbing? You can't just drop something about slavery like we that. We talk all that and more on Things That Keep Me Up at Night, a podcast for those that like to commiserate and learn more about things that we promise will make you lose sleep. Um, uh, we're, uh, we're available on all platforms, and you can find us at TTKMeUp uh, on Instagram and Twitter. New uploads every Friday. Join in on the horror. You were kidding about the slavery thing, right?